0: Good evening, everyone. You're all very welcome to the Forum. The Forum Philosophy is a non-profit organisation. What we do is we put on events like this um, once a week throughout the academic term, and they're always free, open to all, and so you're always welcome to come to them. Um, we're able to do this because we have some incredibly generous donors. Um, If you would like to be one of those generous people I encourage you to go to our website where you can find a link to our Just Giving page. It's the only (laughs) way we keep going and uh, it's not cheap to do events in London as you might guess so any help you can give would be most gratefully received. Um, Just a couple of housekeeping matters, if you could turn off the volume on your phone that would be much appreciated Um, so as not to interrupt our fantastic speakers Um, but do feel free to tweet along if that's your game. Uh, we have our very own hashtag LSE form, um, and so you can join the conversation there if you'd like. Um, this is being recorded for a podcast, and uh, if you ask a question, bear in mind that your voice will be recorded on the podcast and be put out onto the internet forevermore, so just bear that in mind. And do wait for the roving microphone to find you if you do have a, have a question. Anyway, that's more than enough for me. Let me hand you over to our really fantastic panel for tonight's event, and thanks for coming. <coughs>
1: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the LSD, and welcome to this forum event on the life and work of W.E.B. Du Bois. So, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, William Edward Burghardt Du Bois, very well known as a civil rights campaigner, sociologist, author of books including Souls of Black Folk, Black Reconstruction, but arguably a rather neglected figure in the history of philosophy, his contributions to philosophy were significant too. And in this panel event, we're going to be discussing what Du Bois uh, can teach philosophy today on topics as wide-ranging as his views on race, racism, politics, and his views on the nature of science. And it's a real pleasure to be joined by three panelists coming to this topic from very different backgrounds, bringing different expertise to bear. I mean, they are uh, Liam Kofi Bright, philosopher from here at the LSE. uh, Brian Kelly, historian from Queen's University, Belfast. And Mira Sabaratnam from the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies, uh, expert in international relations. To give you a sense of the uh, format for the event, we'll be talking a bit among the panel about various key issues relating to Du Bois. And then a couple of points throughout the event, we'll take questions from you, the audience, give you the chance to uh, put your questions to the panel. I mean, let's start with with you, Brian. I mean, just some of the basics about Du Bois, about his life, about his work. When did he live? What what sort of environment was he living in?
2: Okay, so Du Bois um, lives a very long public life. He's born in 1868, which is uh, three years after the end of the Civil War and the end of slavery in the United States, Um, and probably a year in which the hopes of former slaves were... Uh, higher than they'd ever been Great optimism about the possibilities for the future um, And then he comes of age, really He reaches maturity at in, in a period when all those hopes have been dashed right? By the mid-1880s and into the 1890s When Du Bois goes to university uh, White supremacy is back in the saddle in the South uh, Whites have set about the resubjugation of uh, black workers across the South Former slaves And in place of that great optimism, uh, a sense of deep despair is set in in the black community. Du Bois is part of a conversation about how to move forward in these very difficult circumstances. But he lives until... uh, So he writes Black Reconstruction, the book that I write, and probably the most important book in American historiography. The book I study, sorry, I wish I wrote it. (laughs) Um, uh, He writes that in 1935, when he's 67 years old, and he lives almost 30 years after that. So, and all that time, really from the 1890s all the way up until uh, his death in 1963, he dies on the morning that King gives his uh, I Have a Dream speech, the March on Washington. Uh, all through that time, Du Bois is in the public limelight. He is the towering black intellectual of his, of his lifetime. He's a public figure, uh, an activist. But operating, because he's active over 60 or 70 years, in some very different contexts. And that makes it hard to kind of pick out, you know, when we do we ask, was Du Bois a pan-Africanist? Well, at certain points in his career he was. Was he a Marxist or socialist? At certain points in his career he arguably came close to that. But he moves through a long lifetime of very, uh, uh, of shifting
1: uh, context. Yeah, like many significant philosophers, right? Views not not stable throughout his lifetime, but constantly changing. I mean, what sort of context was? I mean, was did he have a receptive audience in America at that time?
2: I would say the height of his uh, influence is really around the uh, a few periods, really. But I would say around the turn of the century, around the between the late 1890s and the early and the first world war Du Bois is a major figure in uh, black politics he founds he's one of the founders of the Niagara movement during that period and then the NAACP he is uh, the editor of the NAACP's newspaper The Crisis and Mm -hmm. tremendously influential he's involved in the key debate of that period over uh, strategy for black politics and he Sets himself off as an opponent of uh, Booker T. Washington. We can maybe get into that later on. But the, you know, this comes to be known as the Washington Du Bois debate, a debate over how African Americans in the South can move themselves forward in, in tough times. I will say one mm. important thing about Du Bois that we need to bear in mind: when he's born in 1868, and really all the way up until about 1910. The vast majority of African-Americans live in the slave states and former slave states of the South. Ninety-plus percent of all African-Americans live in the South up until the period of the First World War. Du Bois is not part of that world. Mm. He's born in what is still remote, rural Western Massachusetts. He's the only black student in his graduating class. um, And he comes up in a very different environment than the... uh, what black southerners would have been accustomed to.
1: So his his formative environment was one pretty dominated by white people.
2: Absolutely, and also one which gave him more space to develop his intellectual powers than he would have been allowed in the south. So he attends uh, Fisk University on a scholarship. It's the first time he actually goes south to Nashville, and I think it's 1886. He. Uh, Gets a position eventually at Atlanta University in the South. Um, He's the first uh, African-American to be awarded a Ph.D. from Harvard University. And so he's he's in some ways in a world of his own for much of his early uh, life and only begins to come into contact with his people. I mean, when he goes to Fisk in 1886, he says, from this point forward, I was a Negro. You know, he saw himself then as part of the Black South, Or, uh, or Black America, most of which resided in. You saw that as a kind
1: of epiphany, a kind of key moment in his life.
2: Yeah, there are a few of these. Mm. And he, I mean, it sounds
1: like someone with you know one foot in the academic world, one foot outside of it.
2: Well, he's got two feet. He's a very serious academic. I mean, that's. I think he would have seen himself primarily as an intellectual, and he also grew up at a time when. Uh, he was influenced, I think, by the wider uh, currents uh, that were kind of in the air at the time. And there was a sense among white intellectuals who Du Bois would have rubbed shoulders with at Harvard that they had a leading role to play in reforming uh, in reforming away the excesses of an industrial capitalist society. Du Bois is part of that. And this is where uh, he constructs this idea of a talented 10th, a black elite, mm. an aristocracy among the race who would lead uh, the black masses yeah. out of uh, their Controversial into, idea, I, I take extremely it. Extremely controversial, and I think worth exploring maybe at length
1: here. Mm. I mean, let's bring, bring Liam in on this, shall we? I mean, mm. uh, I mean, on any of these aspects of Du Bois' life, but perhaps also his books in particular, the Souls of Black Folk, for example, crucially uh, important book.
3: Yeah. So one of the interesting things about Du Bois's development is um, thinking about how he moved politically over his over his life. Where certainly at the beginning of his life, he has these kind of uh, philanthropic, elitist ideals of mm-hmm. uh, being part of a sort of intellect of the mind who are going to lead the masses forward by displaying their higher ideals and putting forward ideas which would naturally gain the allegiance of the masses if presented in the right kind of way. Um, and there's an extent to which he moved away from that as he was older. He became more and more democratic. He became more and more thought that we should take our cue from the sort of the democratic will of the great mass of people and so not this kind of elite guiding vision. And yet his last public statement on this, he said that he said that he thought his mistake when he talked about a talented tenth when he was younger was that that was too big a group. It should be the guiding 100th. So the, the movement went both ways, shall we say. Um, so he's someone who kind of has this very interesting... Uh, he had, there are a number of tensions in his view which aren't just present chronologically but also kind of are always there, where there's always this feature of Du Bois that he wants to empower people and yet at the same time believes there's a kind of natural leadership class which he, of course, counts himself amongst. That's this sort of
1: elitist aspect to his thought. You, you think running all the way through his, his career comes and goes.
3: Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, there's interesting, so maybe it's worth saying a little bit about what the two aspects of his thought were. So, on the one hand, there's the idea which could be underlying this idea of the talented tenth, which is that a large number of people sort of, living their lives wrong and taking part in immoral actions or actions which are bound to be not successful on their own terms because they sort of don't understand themselves and the world they live in and what's needed is for clear-sighted people to make apparent how the world actually is and so allow us to take more successful action and more moral action um, and he never drops that, he always has the belief that like, there's a lot of sort of fundamental error misunderstanding Propaganda. He in this book, um, Black Reconstruction. He, he, the last chapter is called the Propaganda of History, and it's about how historians, he thought, especially white historians, were really misleading African Americans as to the, their own society and what was what their own recent past. So he retains that kind of. There's a lot of error in the world, and only an elite few can help us see through it. But at the same time, he comes more and more to think that he more and more to appreciate, rather the extent to which democracy will give us good decisions, that somehow the sort of the pooled wisdom of many, many people will outdo the the, the thinking of yeah. this one person. It's kind of with the wisdom of crowds. And so his whole life I think is trying to balance these balancing
1: the elitism and the democracy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean Brian you mentioned he had various epiphanies throughout his life. I mean what were the others?
2: Well, I, mean, I think a, a, a very big one, and I was reminded when uh, Liam was talking just at the end here about um, his attachment or his aspiration to democracy, the problem for Du Bois really around the turn of the century is he was, as much as he may have committed himself to democracy, there was very little of it on offer for African Americans uh, in the United States, and particularly in the South, where from the mid-1890s onward, black people are deprived of the vote. By 1905 and 1906, every southern state has passed uh, laws which deprive the vast majority of African-American men, of course, women didn't have the vote at the time, of the uh, right to vote. And one of the big epiphanies in Du Bois, and I think this kind of sums up his relationship to democracy in some ways, is Du Bois is somebody who believes that you can marshal kind of empirical facts. You can marshal evidence through the social sciences and so forth. Deliver this uh, data to a reasonable elite, white elite in this case, and you can convince them to act otherwise, you know, to reverse their uh, decisions. And he talks about it himself in his autobiography in 1906. He's on his way to, uh, there's an atmosphere of hysteria being whipped up in Atlanta, Georgia, which was really the Uh, the the glistening uh, uh, metropolis of the you know New South uh, creed in the South Uh, so Du Bois is on his way to the uh, newspaper offices the Atlantic Constitution with a set of notes in his pocket to to try to convince the editor that he should uh, tone down the hysteria uh, that's being whipped up when he uh, en route He discovers that a young African American farm laborer by the name of Sam Hose has been lynched. And Du Bois reports that actually parts of his body, it was common in uh, late 19th century lynchings in the South to dismember and mutilate uh, the victims, vast majority of whom were poor African American men, that parts of Sam Hose's body are on sale on his route uh, to from Morehouse College, where he's ensconced, to the newspaper office. He puts his notes back in his pocket, turns around, and I think it's a shattering experience for him in terms of uh, curing for him the delusion that pure reason, just by reasoning with uh, white Mm. elites, the situation could be
1: changed. That sort of social science by itself would somehow solve all of these problems.
3: Yeah. yeah, and there's also a notable change in his writing style around this point where he goes from writing sort of quite dry, relatively dry academic treatises that's relative to his later writing to writing much more evocative prose mm. where, I, where I think part of what's happened is he thinks that it, it, we can't just present the facts to refute the racist ideas which are being spread. They need to be presented in such a way that will sort of grab people's attention and mm. shift their emotional relationship to the world and the other people in their society. And writing for a wider audience
1: perhaps at that point. Yes, mm. yes, certainly.
3: Although, I mean, it should be said, even when he was um, doing more pure social sciences, one might say, he was also well known as an innovator in data or visual representation of data. And so you can see they're available online the, um, Du Bois's contributions to the Paris exhibition 1900. And they're really beautiful. I mean, they stand out as sort of They hold their own as pieces of modernist art as well as pieces of science. And so, you know, it's not that it wasn't there before that he was thinking about how to present the information in a way that was evocative, but Mm. I think this is a moment where he really sort of shifts gear and it becomes more of a focus for him.
4: Yeah, and I think um, just in terms of talking about Du Bois's context and trajectory, just to put that in a uh, global context, he... Is born essentially before the Scramble for Africa, and he dies after most African countries have been uh, decolonized formally and the links between his own thinking and the emergence and sort of high noon of the decolonization movement also needs to be borne in mind, because what Du Bois is struggling with we can also consider as a specific instantiation of a global problem, so to some extent. Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam is struggling with a similar problem of how to deal with the relations between elites and masses, what the nature of transnational identification is. whether, let's say, and race, and we'll come on to this, is uh, a question of uh, birth or biology or something much more kind of sociological and historical. So um, we should always consider that Du Bois has many contemporaries struggling with similar kinds of issues. I
3: I mean, I think Du Bois has the very famous line that the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the colour line, where he thinks that what imperialism is doing is making this kind of Western problem of the relationship between the so-called superior races and the inferior races well it's now global because the whites have taken over everywhere and imposing their supposed superiority on everyone else and so
1: Mm. so i mean it's natural to ask with any figure in the history of philosophy whether their thought was something that was a product of their particular circumstances and time or whether it's something that has a certain kind of timelessness to it i mean it sounds like what you're saying you know du bois is an example of someone who what he was writing was very much addressing the urgent questions of his time, as, as opposed to perhaps trying to go off into the abstract realm of philosophical questions that, that kind of float free of any particular historical context
3: I'd, I'd say that's broadly right, but along the way to i mean this and I think this often happens with many philosophers, along the way to answering those particular questions of the problems of his day. He found that, for instance, he had to clarify matters regarding the scientific method. So one of the problems he ran into was that he thought that social scientists were just saying false things en masse about African-Americans. and so He was trying to think, like, why is that? Why are they getting things so wrong? So systematically, despite the fact that they purport to be scientists. And, And he had a lot to say, and I think we're going to get onto it later. But in doing that, he had to sort of answer questions about... What is good inquiry? How can we find out about the world in a reliable way? Mm. And, so his, I, and so I think he shares with many of the great philosophers this sense in which answering the particular questions of his day mm. requires him, in, this sort of in the name of intellectual honesty, to also answer these very general abstract questions, classic questions of philosophy. So there's a sort of a, a, a dialogue between the, t- the abstract and the particular in him.
1: I mean, let's talk about uh, Du Bois' views about race in particular, race and racism. I mean, Mira, do you want to explain some of those key ideas?
4: Yes. I suppose what's interesting about Du Bois is that, um, as with other things, his his views change over the course of his very long uh, intellectual um, uh, life. but there's maybe two interesting elements that we can pull out. So the element that I think most contemporary people would feel most comfortable about in Du Bois's writings about race is that he is what I would call a materialist about race. That is, he sees race as the production of specific social relations that have a history that change over time um, and that are linked to the political and economic uh, structures that they're Embedded in, uh, and I think that 's a set of insights which was relatively groundbreaking at the time, and is one with which I would say the main kind of intellectual consensus is now. Um, however, being a man of his time, essentially born in the in the Victorian era, you can also find a strand in his thinking which is what you might call organicist about race, so he thinks that races are real things right so in the course of his writings, he identifies a different number of races depending on where you look. Um, but he makes claims such as, you know, there are seven or eight races, they are the Mongolian, the Hindustani, the Slavic, the Teutonic, etc., uh, etc., et, cetera, et cetera, um, And believes that these races are a primary grouping in, in human existence and have a specific contribution to make to human civilization. Now, there are various ways in which he reconciles over the course of his life or attempts to reconcile, uh, the, on the one hand, the sort of need to see race as a product of social and political relations, and on the other hand, the reality, the lived reality or the experience of race and the phenomenon of group consciousness and group collective uh, striving.
1: Yeah, I mean, Liam, let's bring you in on this. I mean, philosophers today debate this issue of whether race is socially constructed or whether it's a natural category. Where is Du Bois in relation to this?
3: So Du Bois is usually thought of as the founder of two of the main schools um, in the philosophy of race, reflecting the fact that he changed his mind over time and it turns out his thought was so productive that two of the main views now take the cue from him. The first of those, as was just mentioned, is the view that, in some sense, what makes a race a race, certain kinds, of, or certain kinds of social relationships amongst its members. So something about sharing a culture, sharing certain patterns of life. And so when he'll give these like different, uh, different races, he'll say, well, the Teutons, they're the people who write prose this kind of way, or something like that. Mm. Now, certainly what people nowadays do not take from Du Bois is his specific cultural claims about what the Teutons are doing, whatever. But um the idea that somehow what makes a race is some kind of shared cultural commonality that has remained um uh current. But later on in his thinking, another one of Du Bois's many famous quotable lines is um challenged to define uh what it is to be black, he says, well, I can define uh, what it is to be black with full legal force. Uh, To be black is to have to ride the Jim Crow car in Alabama. And and there we see this development of this idea that um, races are things which are hierarchically ordered in a kind of social-political sense. And so um, racism means a, a tool for social domination, a means by which you group some people as higher than others in a in implicit or an implicit or an explicit social hierarchy, and these are two different ideas but related. They both have this feature that um, a race is somehow created by the ways we interact with each other socially. But in one of them, race is a kind of definitionally hierarchical. Race is just the kind of thing which is the basis of some kind of social hierarchy. Whereas in the other, it's at least possible to imagine an egalitarian. Relationship between races even if we don't happen to instantiate that now. Um, yeah. Mira?
4: So um, I'd maybe just add a, a, a twist to that which is I think he writes about blackness and whiteness quite differently. So um, actually when he's writing about whiteness rather than blackness um, he's much more I would say of uh, a materialist and a sceptic about the value or the reality of group identification. Um, this is particularly around the time of the First World War and immediately afterwards when essentially Europe has torn itself apart in an enormous bloodbath and all of the claims about the civilization and the forbearance of Europe are being doubted. Um, and he writes about the invention of whiteness. He said, when did people decide they were white? And he recalls the invention of whiteness as actually being a very recent phenomenon, as indeed it was. Um, when did
1: he place City.
4: so he places it i mean essentially to the late nineteenth century it 's the, ah, really? the discovery of whiteness amongst uh, the descendants of these European groupings. This is a recent thing um, and he says what 's special about it so what 's interesting is that he deconstructs all of the mythologies of whiteness uh, within his writings and says look, they haven't got a special claim to be better or smarter than anybody else. They haven't got a special claim to be more advanced scientifically. Um, what makes the difference between whites and others is the width of the stage on which they've played their part, right? So they just happened to become to power, essentially in an age of globalization, industrialization, imperial expansion. Um, and he makes very clear that he sees no special moral characteristic that makes white people inherently worse or inherently better than any other race, but that it's this, it's this global stage on which they're playing their part in the late 19th and early 20th century, that means that the crimes are, let's say, multiplied accordingly. Um, and I think that's an interesting... You know,
3: yeah, so, so to come in on that, I mean, it's interesting that when Du Bois does list the races, What we would nowadays think of as white people is actually for him multiple races And so I think part of I mean this is implicit in what you said But part of what makes whiteness a somewhat suspect category to Du Bois is is it's kind of It's not a real race to him It's just an amalgamation of different groups which have clubbed up to form In Scramble for Africa for instance have made a load of deals to conquer the world together But that doesn't make them somehow a real cultural grouping
2: you know, the only thing I would add to that is that I think uh, it, it's probably implicit already what people said, but that Du Bois didn't set these this idea of race into circulation. You know, he was operating in a milieu where those ideas were deeply embedded in the way that, uh, uh, particularly, uh, elites, white elites, looked out at the the world around them, and so Du Bois is attempting to kind of navigate. And strategize in a context in which which he hasn't constructed himself, and um, it, 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 it's in that context I think where he begins to think about uh, race. My my general view is that Du Bois aimed toward uh, a kind of a universalist idea that the you know there was a human race, but that um, in, in terms of black politics. Uh, also held to the idea that uh, an element of race pride, black nationalism, pan-Africanism could be a kind of uh, offer some shield against the denigration, the constant denigration from white society. So I think for him, uh, in some ways race pride and the need to kind of encourage that was an attempt to build up a black nation, which could uh, claim its own in in a in a universal uh, society.
1: Mm. I mean, Liam, that quotation about Jim Crow, you know, suggests a very very close relationship between race and racism. It almost suggests if there was no racism, there would be no races. Is that is that his view, or is it more subtle than that?
3: I mean, I think it's just that you can find different views in him at different times. Mm. So. Certainly at one point in his career, um, this is, I think, from the text uh, Darkwater, you can find... uh, No, sorry, it's Dusk of Dawn, where you can find Du Bois saying things which do seem to suggest that if we ended racial oppression, in some sense, we would just have Mm. got rid of races, and that would be the sense in which he's some kind of universalist. It would be a good thing to move to a world in which people do not have races. But that's not the only view you can find in Du Bois. You can certainly also find Du Bois saying things Mm -hmm. which seems to suggest that in the ideal future, it's not that there won't be separate races; it's just that we'll be seen as equals, and everyone will be allowed to sort of make their contribution to world culture and be appreciated as equals making such contributions.
1: So, Mira, I mean, one, one of his key ideas here was this concept of double consciousness. Do you want to say something about what that meant?
4: Yes, I mean, I suppose there's actually a debate over whether double consciousness is a key idea for Du Bois. He uses it um, a few times in The Souls of Black Folk. It's not really developed, Mm. um, but it has been widely picked up by scholars after him, which makes it interesting. Um, So in The Souls of Black Folk, he describes double consciousness um, actually in a couple of ways. So in the first way, um, it's the sense of other people looking at you and defining you. So this peculiar sensation of being sort of gazed upon by others. Um, But he uses it a couple of sentences later in in a different way, which is uh, of two souls warring in the same body, right? An African soul and an American soul um, as, and you know, struggling to keep the the parts together. Um, Now this has been picked up because it's prefigurative in two interesting ways, but almost in opposite ways. So the first thing where you're saying this double consciousness is produced by other people looking at me funny, basically, um, you can read through, let's say, a sort of materialist theory of alienation, right? There are dominant forces in the world that define what blackness means. It's very negative. I, as a subject with my own kind of uh, psychology, experience their negativity, but I also resist it. So you can read it as a sort of sort of psychologically productive tension. Mm -hmm. Um, The other reading, though, so that sees blackness as basically rooted in, let's say, alienation. The other reading uh, is a more optimistic one, and it says, um, there is this Negro spirit which I have, and there is a... Sorry, that's the term used by Du Bois. um, And there's an American spirit that I have, and... I know that both have worth in them and I don't want to have to choose between them and I want to deliver both unto the world, right? So there's a story of redemption in that second reading of double consciousness, uh, which, again, kind of feeds into what Liam was saying about people taking Du Bois's, even that one paragraph, in very different yeah. directions.
3: I mean, relatedly, um, there's this interesting passage in uh, a dialogue he wrote, which is a conversation between... Um, a sort of an imagined white interlocutor and himself, where he has the white interlocutor describe what what he thinks it means to be a good American of his day. And the white America goes through and describes, well, on the one hand, I have these ideals of being a good American, sort of a thrifty capitalist, basically. On the other hand, I have these ideals of being a good Christian, which is a sort of Charitable philanthropist in many ways, and then I have this idea of being a good white man, which is a sort of domineering lord of the other races, and like, and gosh darn it, it seems very hard to simultaneously be a thrifty philanthropist overlord, um, and and so there's a sense in which uh, like there are there are multiple points in Du Bois' writing where he does analyze this idea that you can that the same person can find himself torn between different ideals. And double consciousness is the phrase which has been picked up on a lot because that's the experience of African-Americans in particular he's talking about. But it, it seems to be part of a, a, a theme he was interested in in other areas.
4: Mm. And, can I, I mean, and it's also interesting that double consciousness also has roots in both... Um, let's say, romantic movement of the sort of 19th century where people were starting to think about the spirits that were, you know, in men and struggling with reason, essentially, that struggle. Um, And also in the development of the novel as a literary form in which the first kind of real attempts to present consciousness as kind of coherent and also to play with the fractures that could come about in consciousness through the novel form. So Du Bois you know, would read lots of these Dickensian romantic and uh, um, George Eliot and those kinds of uh, romantic writers and think about the production of the self.
1: Can we talk about the debates Du Bois was embroiled in in his own lifetime about race and this debate uh, Liam alluded to with Booker T. Washington. Uh, Brian, do you want to...
2: Yeah, so what I mean, the, controversy the, was there. The, the context for the debate is that, uh, <clears throat> as I say, whites have returned to power in the South uh, from about 1877, 18- mm. 1880 onward. Um, and from the mid 80s have embarked on a campaign aimed at uh, basically putting blacks back in their place in the South. Mm. And this is also in a context of uh, rapid industrialization. The South that uh, its elites want to build is an industrial South with the same kind of that can compete with Pittsburgh and Chicago and other places. And black labor is uh, to be the foundation of that new South. Mm-hmm. Um, blacks have lost the right to vote. They are reminded at every turn, really, of their inferior status. Uh, they go to separate and unequal schools. The Supreme Court in 1896, U.S. Supreme Court, sanctioned segregation as the law of the land. And uh, Rayford Logan, you know, early African-American historian, calls this the nadir in African-American history, the low point in African-American history. Leon Litwack has called it the most brutal and repressive period in the history of U.S. race relations. So somewhere between 1880 and 1915, when the First World War breaks things open a bit, Very difficult period for African-Americans in the South. Booker T. Washington is a former slave born in the South who, uh, in 1895, is invited to make a speech at the Atlanta Exposition. It's kind of an agricultural fair where he's invited by uh, prominent whites and gives a speech and basically says, we will surrender the demand for political and civic equality in return for a little bit of peace. Basically, uh, Washington accepts segregation, and toward blacks in the South, he says, we must forget about politics, save our money, be thrifty, sober, and 20, 30, 40 years from now, we may be able to uh, return to full equality. For Du Bois, this is uh, he's repulsed by this. Uh, and Du Bois argues that it is wrong to surrender any of the kind of political rights that African-Americans had won. And so there's a debate that takes place between them. You can read the, you know, the text of that. There's a, there's a chapter in Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk, which is published in 1903. And it's a chapter called Of Mr. Booker T. Washington and Others. And really, that's the best place to get Du Bois's side of the story. I would argue that uh, both, ironically, neither of the strategies, either the one pursued by Washington, which is about surrendering political equality and concentrating on industrial education, learning how to build a house and so forth, nor Du Boises, which relied on this talented tenth, an elite that would deliver the race, neither of them really speaks to the needs of the overwhelming majority of African-Americans in the South who are destitute, exploited, oppressed, imprisoned, all the rest of it. Both of them are, I mean, Du Bois is in many ways something I'd be more sympathetic to. He advocates protests. You know, we must protest our conditions. But he doesn't really have a solution to the problem of the predicament that most African-Americans live in.
3: I mean, one of Du Bois' most fascinating arguments in this period is so Du Bois was a trained sociologist and he also had a kind of uh, all but the defense PhD in economic history from Berlin there's a strange bureaucratic story about how he didn't end up having the actual PhD he was eventually awarded the PhD by Khrushchev later in his life who just directed the East German University to do that so thanks Khrushchev but um he paid a heavy price for that yeah, no he did <laughs> Um, but um, but sort of Du Bois had done a number of studies, and one of the things he brings out in this argument with Booker T. Washington is the thought that if a. Pe- so Booker T. Washington can be seen as advocating, sorry, let's negotiate from a position of strength. Right now, like, it really was a period of just terrible, terrible oppression for African Americans in the South, and they're not really in a position to defend themselves, so, so Booker T. Washington thought, said, like, we, we can't fight this now. We'll build up money, we'll build up wealth, and when you have money, Americans have to respect you. So we will negotiate later from a position of strength, from like the one kind of thing Americans do respect, which is money. But one of the things that persuaded Du Bois was the thought, well, there are a number of arguments, but I think one of the most interesting is that based on his own study of people who had been building up wealth in the South, who were African Americans who were running successful farms, successful businesses, is they were um, attacked and the sheriff wouldn't protect them or the state would refuse to fund the roads to and from their farm and so they weren't able to actually sell their produce. And so Du Bois argued, and this was partly based on the work of Ida B. Wells, another famous sociologist and journalist and activist who had some interactions with her throughout his life. But part of Du Bois' argument, therefore, was that... um, it, it just can't work. The, the Booker T. Washington strategy, this, this attempt to sort of retreat and just build up our power base, it can't work because of the kind of thing, um, the, the way politics and economics interact, the way they're not fully separate spheres, but they're deeply intertwined. So. Thanks. I mean, it'd be
1: great at this point to take a few questions from the audience on these issues relating to uh, Du Bois's life and work and his views on race and racism. Um, I could take a block of maybe three questions let's go uh, there.
0: Yes, thank you this is very interesting and I'm wondering about his religious commitments it seems to be quite difficult to picture someone working across the things he's working across with this set of ideas without having some sense about how that fitted with whatever the religious commitments were and I'm sure there were some because of that period
3: Okay. So, so that's actually quite a controversial question, and was in his lifetime. So one of the first academic jobs he got was at a evangelical uh, school, denominational school in Ohio, and he was very nearly fired, because on his first day there, he was in the lunch hall, someone saw him and said, ah, uh, Dr. Du Bois will lead us in prayer, to which Du Bois said, no, he will not, <laughs> and then he nearly got fired. Um, it seems um I've read a little bit about this, and it seems that he would sometimes appeal to uh christian language and he He's wrote this famous thing, the creed which has the form of a prayer to God, and he would often invoke uh christ as a as an ideal figure, but his personal religious commitments are a little bit opaque; it seemed that it while he was obviously inspired in some ways by Christianity as the The religious cultural form he was most familiar with, he never quite wholeheartedly developed, um, devoted himself to the faith. At least that's my knowledge.
4: Yeah, I think so. I think what's interesting is also, though, that he roots a lot of his conception of what he calls Negro culture could be in spirituality. And so, even if he may be an on again, off again uh, Christian, he he is spiritual in in at least two senses. One, he takes very seriously um, uh, the, the history of, of slave music in the, in the South as being a major contribution. At some point he calls it the only piece of real culture that the South has delivered in America, right, is the, is the music of the enslaved. Um, and the uh, other sense in which he's um, spiritual is in thinking about African religion as, uh, as kind of prophetic, right? And there is a prophetic quality to a lot of what he's saying and what he's talking about so another way of reading the concept of double consciousness is actually as a, a spiritual belief called the veil about um the possibility of second sight right and so he's always treading a line between let's say the secular and the spiritual particularly in the early writings um that that is uh, productive
3: oh and one more thing i was reminded by his so he's his got this very famous analysis of uh the spiritual music of the, the rural African-American poor, which he was very fond of. And in the same book in which this is put forward, he also ha- he wrote a short story, it's probably my favorite of Du Bois's fiction, about um, somebody trying and failing to play the role of a kind of elite cultural leader. It's called The Coming of John, where a young man from a town in the south goes away to the north to get educated and while there um, sort of loses his faith, or at least starts to speak and act in a very secular way and then comes back and tries to play the role of the Du Boisian talented tent for the Du Boisian elite guiding the people of his old town to a better way of life and the people are horrified by his atheism and they won't follow him, they won't let him play that role and it's, the story's a tragedy but I won't spoil the ending um, <laughs> it doesn't end well uh, and so that does seem to be some kind of acknowledgement of like if you're going to be the leader to the African-American population of the time Du Bois is writing, he seems to think that you have to be at least outwardly a Christian and maybe deeper than that too. And so there's some kind of relationship between that
2: the, the other interesting thing I think is that Washington as well is you know, secular agnostic and, and often rails against the kind of exploitive uh, role of an element among the black ministry at least. Um, So I think there's a trend in the late 19th century South toward uh, an opening up of a kind of secular space in African-American culture that you can see in uh, the rise of blues music, for instance, as a tradition, which is, you know, seen as the devil's music by uh, the black church in many ways. And, um, you know, with increased urbanization, with movement north, we get, uh, I think, a real internal struggle within the, black, uh, within the African community in the South about uh, Christianity. Du-, du Bois, in some ways, doesn't really push it as hard as Washington does, but um, it's significant, I think, that both of the major uh, leaders, and we should talk about Ida Wells because she's important here but left to the side, but both of the main uh, – sorry, no, recognized – African-American leaders are secular, agnostic, or at least, you know, mm. uncommitted to uh, Christianity in attempting to lead a people who are overwhelmingly committed to the church. And, and, so
3: that's, and, and, and that's one of the things which always makes um, the relationship between Du Bois and King so interesting, where Du Bois sort of speaks of the role of this kind of intellectual, cultural leader who will guide the struggles of the African-American people and obviously he wants to play that role himself and approximate to it, approximates to it, but is never, never quite occupies the position which he wishes to. Whereas King, who is like Du Bois, he's a PhD, he's very he's an intellectual, um, but is also a Christian minister, is the person who's able to play that role. And so it has some kind of of the coming of John-esque feature.
4: Uh, do you think, so I think that there's something in Du Bois's internationalism in terms of his early... Uh, um, life and also his later travels and so on that disconnects him a little bit from America in a way that maybe King is not quite as disconnected like King feels rooted in his context in a way that Du Bois I mean it's, it's, a, it's both a beautiful thing and a tragedy. Du Bois is this incredibly unique cosmopolitan figure that travels the world essentially twice over at a time when, you know, most African Americans are being horribly um, oppressed. And he finds... He falls in love in Germany, and he travels to, you know, um, uh, Africa relatively late, and he's from the north, but he lives in the south, and he's always slightly out of joint. And there's a funny thing about him being... Um, you know his personal kind of sartorial choices being very à la mode, right? He likes—he likes to be a bit of a dandy. He's always very sharply turned out, um, and he seems to be more of that kind of—if I, if I might characterise it um, slightly cynically—that sort of elite cosmopolitan figure. And he inhabits that very comfortably, and less comfortably as a man of the people.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, quite. So I mean, I actually, on his odd sartorial choices. I think I recall reading that he modeled himself when he was studying in Germany. He saw the Kaiser riding by one day and thought, "Like, yeah, that's that's me up there." <laughs> and so he adopted uh, Prussian cavalry officer gloves, <laughs> which he would wear for the rest of his life. Which is, like, the man was bold.
4: <laughs> and the facial hair, of course. I'm learning a lot here. I know.
1: <laughs> we have time for a couple uh, more questions from the audience. There's one from the second row here. Please wait for the microphone to come to you so we can capture the question. I Did no, didn't.
5: Hello, thank you so much for interesting comments so far. I just wanted to ask a question in relation to, um, I guess, his concept of race. One of the things I noticed, particularly when I was reading Desk of Dawn, is that he also tries to get into the psych- psychology of how it feels to be discriminated against and racialized. Um, he does that in relation to whiteness as well when he's talking about his encounters, <coughs> explaining how he's racialized specifically in relation to the white men that speak to him um i think and it gets particularly dark and dark water where he talks about propaganda in terms of dealing with being dehumanized or, or when you're cast as black i was wondering if you could talk about that i was also hoping for anyone who has knowledge in relation to his relations to other religions particularly zionism um because and uh Sorry, uh, Judaism I meant specifically because I remember that was one thing that he said when the Negro in the Warsaw Ghetto so realizing there was a connection between other groups being discriminated discriminated against on the basis of race and himself.
3: Um, Well, I, I mean, it sounds like you may have read just what I've read but I can say that on Judaism after World War II he felt that there, there was a lot of parallel between the way Jews had been treated in Central Europe and the position of African Americans in in america, and so he sort of he this is not this is more sort of jews as a as an ethnos rather than the jewish religion, but he he clearly saw them as kind of an oppressed group and I know he uh, he actually engaged in some correspondence with Albert Einstein, where Albert Einstein wrote a short piece for a journal that Du Bois was um, editor of that time where Einstein outlines the idea that kind of as as a German Jew, um, he kind of had a sort of empath- he had empathy for the position of African Americans and support their struggle. And that was, Du Bois and Einstein sort of had basically the same idea and that's why Du Bois commissioned the piece. Um, maybe Mira on the psychology of race. Um, yes,
4: yeah, so I mean I don't know, I mean I think on the psychology of racism no of course he took it very um seriously and he saw and he was conscious that he was black in america in a way that he wasn't in either europe or africa right so in both germany and africa um he wasn't received in the same way and he actually in some senses felt more liberated to be fully human right and so it's so there is a strain in him about the gaze about the sort of kinds of questions and the kinds of um, what we might in today's parlance call sort of microaggressions which was not a term that it was all that would have all made sense to him but uh, uh, those interactions Um, but I think at the same time he was developing what I would call a sort of historical and sociological analysis of the same so he (coughs) always kind of came back to seeing these things as functionally important in what I would say industrial capitalism. And so uh, he was weaving out stories about uh, Africa's role in history that brought essentially from sort of 5,000 years ago, ancient Egyptians, up to the present. And what he wanted to show, and in a way is sort of riposte to the sort of psychologizing of race, is that the oppression of black people was functionally important to the development of industrial capitalism so um i don't know if that kind of really answers the the question but i think that is really important that particularly um you know there's a lot of things going on the other thing i just wanted to say was a lot of anti-colonial thinkers watching the second world war in its aftermath pointed out the parallels between uh, anti-Semitism and the Holocaust that happened in uh, Europe with what had been happening previously. Actually, Du Bois had done this in 1915 when uh, comparing the slaughter of Europeans to the slaughter of uh, Congolese and why one was an object of international outcry and the other wasn't. And you saw it again in the 1930s where um, the invasion of Ethiopia, uh, Abyssinia by Italy was not kind of uh, pushed back against. So he was um, very conscious of the fundamental hypocrisy that racism produced in modernity. So modernity has these liberalizing, progressive, scientific aspirations, except the hypocrisies produced by race sort of pull those apart and undermine them all the time.
2: There's one other piece I think that we haven't touched on, but it's important for Du Bois's development. And that is, from the uh, mid, from around the period of the First World War, Du Bois is deeply engaged with uh, the left, with uh, Marxists mm, yeah. in and around New York City. And in 1926, visits the Soviet Union, uh, a, a trip that makes a deep impression upon him. And the most, for him, <coughs> the most. Uh, I suppose, spectacular aspect of that trip is his impression that the Soviet Union has solved the nationalities problem and particularly a long history of anti-Semitism that the Soviet government, the early Soviet government, has made inroads against, deep inroads against uh, a deep-rooted tradition. That came back. What's that?
1: Anti-Semitism came back, I suppose.
2: Absolutely, and I think Du Bois underestimates that, by the way. It's an impressionistic uh, 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 impression it's, it, I think there are problems with his impression he's there for a short period mm-hmm. and overestimates the degree of change he's seen but the other thing which is very important if you look at his correspondence all through the 1920s and 30s that many of the people he's engaged with intellectually in New York are part of the left milieu many of them are disproportionately Jews uh, many of them having been born in Eastern Europe or in Russia and Russian, having moved to uh, New York and been involved in, uh, on the left. Was so he a Marxist? Du, du Bois is engaged with this. Was he a Marxist? Would you say? Well, he claimed to be by the end of his life, and he's certainly uh, deeply engaged with Marxism. I think for the most uh, for most of the 30s, Du Bois is uh, reading extensively in Marxism and also Black Reconstruction. Really, is a work of Marxist historiography, uh, which I think is uh, part of what gives it its explanatory power. But certainly all through his life, Du Bois is – I shouldn't say all through his life. From the First World War onward, I think, Du Bois is engaged with Marxism. Uh, We can talk about this, but I think the kind of talented tent that elitist strain in his thinking leads him to a certain version of Marxism, which – and eventually to fairly unapologetic support for Stalinism in Russia.
3: So, I mean, I'd say Du Bois actually had a habit of visiting authoritarian regimes, being given a very helpful tour guide <laughs> by the, the, re, the leaders of said authoritarian regime, and coming back and reporting, like, wow, that place is great. <laughs> um, he was a very astute sociologist, but he seemed to fall for this one every time. So... <laughs>
4: And, and this is even um, when pretty awful things have been exposed, he's mm-hmm. still writing in relatively glowing terms about the Soviet Union.
3: Yeah, I mean, he, he maintains um, for, as far as I know, until the end of his life, that Trotsky was an agent paid off by Hitler, which was just kind of a ridiculous conspiracy theory. But
2: mm-hmm. yeah, He defends the Soviet Union after Khrushchev's uh, revelations. Yeah. Yeah. So he's... I think in some ways he's moving more towards that position in the latter years of his life. He's got a much more fluid and, I think, uh, creative engagement with Marxism in the 30s. Was he
1: also a Democrat?
3: Uh, Yes, oddly. Um, So, I mean, and so his commitment to democracy was real and shouldn't be understated. He was a campaigner for women's suffrage. He uh, campaigned to sort of end the various restrictions on voting for African-Americans in the South. Um, He would argue against imperialist projects and sort of one of the fundamental premises was that they were anti-democratic. And so yes, he was certainly also committed to democracy. Now, how that, I mean, I think partly how that's reconciled with his support, for instance, for Stalin is just some false beliefs about what's going on in the Soviet Union. Sort of, he thinks that actually what's happened is they said they were giving all power to the Soviets, right? So that means it must be that there's workers' well, councils running things now. now. It's not so simple as that, but there is just this element of he maintains some convenient false beliefs about what's going on in these regimes.
4: Um, and just on that, I think what's interesting is that it's precisely his attempt to solve the race problem that drives him in both of those directions. So if, I mean, if we take a step back um, the race problem in America is an attempt to keep the proletariat, the white proletariat on the side of the capitalists in some respects, right? And so imperialism and racism help to unite a social body that is fundamentally fragmenting as a result of the degradations of capitalism, right? So um, the analysis that he gives of how and why racism functions is very much rooted in Marxism. But he's also a real American, right? In some sense, he really believes in the promise of what we might call the American dream. But to realize it means to confront both racism and capitalism in a particular kind of way.
3: So so, so maybe instructive is he so the Black Reconstruction is a work of Marxist history. And one of the things he does there is he analogizes the role of the kind of northern military in maintaining the Freedmen's Bureau to something, he he doesn't think it's a dictatorship of the proletariat, but he thinks it's something like that will go with it. There is a strong government hand basically suppressing the various revanchist movements, but that's allowing for democracy. There is actually a condition for the possibility of black people to take place in a democracy in the South, and the evidence for that is the minute that went away the There was a wave of There was a terrorist campaign Against the black population And so I think what he thought I may, I take from this the hope was something like uh, Apparently strong authoritarian governments Could just be used to sort of crush Anti-democratic movements And allow a democracy to foster How plausible that would be in actual cases I don't know And there were very special circumstances Which made that possible in the south But Yes, okay, let's take one more question
1: from the, from the back here. It would be great if we could find a working microphone. That would be fantastic uh, to allow us to hear your question. Um, sh- just wait a moment. I think we've got one. Hi.
5: Oh. Um, yeah, um, did Bois find notoriety in, in um, America more or in, in Germany, um, in with his work, his writings, and and with his in his entire being, basically from where he had uh, you know transgressed from, moved forward too, um, and with his teachings and his practice.
3: So, so he, but he ends his life in Ghana rather than America, basically exiled from America. Um, McCarthyism hit him hard. He was seen as a kind of dangerous radical Marxist um, black person and so that was he was really targeted by the American state Um, and so by the end of his life in sort of official American, the the official position of American government is that Du Bois is a pariah and so he really did gain a lot of notoriety in America as to his position in Germany well I know the East German government were under instructions to like him from Khrushchev but uh, (laughs) does anyone know anything more about the German situation?
2: No, but I, I think in some ways, uh, just to come back to uh, Du Bois and the latter stage of his life when he's uh, very often outspoken in defense of uh, what's going on in Russia, I think that's the other piece of it. I mean, part of it is I think Du Bois has a long uh, um, attachment to this cult of the expert where uh, kind of an elite would deliver uh, emancipation for humanity, and and there's an element of that in Stalinism. But the other piece is that Du Bois is being pushed into a corner by the U.S. Uh, government. I mean, he suffers terribly under McCarthyism. He's not the only one. Paul Robeson, who he's uh, very close friends with, also, you know, was brought to, uh, you know, people who know Robeson, tremendously powerful, uh, strong intellect, uh, brought to nervous breakdown, basically, by the uh, the repression that's meted up by the U.S. government. So it, it, there's an element of the enemy of my enemy is my friend uh, in Du Bois' attachment to the Soviet Union, I think, as well. But it doesn't, in my view at least, it doesn't excuse it.
4: No, and I suppose it's also important to, again, think about that political context. So he's increasingly, I think, in some sense, an activist towards the end of his um, life. And uh, the repression by the American state uh, is... Also, related to his political connections um, to either newly independent or uh, liberation movements. So, they actually take his passport so he can't go to the Bandung Conference where uh, Nehru and Nkrumah and uh, Suharto are meeting. And um, he's very much part of that milieu. So, he has to negotiate the political demands of the polarity as well as, let's say, the intellectual uh, demands. (laughs)
1: I think there's another question from, uh, from yes, the end of the, of the row there.
0: Uh, I think that would be the last question. I will ask a question uh, about democracy. And one speaker said uh, democ- uh, democracy is the power of wisdom. But uh, with the life uh, with the Du Bois, I think he saw uh, poor black man's bones in a shop. Actually, two Tucson white man burned the poor black man and uh, so actually how to people to understand this bad case about democracy if two thousand white people made the decision you, you have seen and we should burn you and uh, I didn't find any result about the ending of these two thousand white people. What happened to them? How do people deal with that? Thank you.
3: Um, yeah, it was a real problem for him. So earlier in his life he'd uh, Joined the Socialist Party, having been inspired by Eugene Debs, a very famous socialist leader, but actually left within a year because he became convinced that if we gave too much power to the union movement, which was then controlled by a certain elite section of the white working class, that these people hate black people and it would be terrible for us um, if they were to be the ones who inherit power under socialism. And so he did have these real concerns about what it would result in if we sort of actually devolved power to the masses of people in America, given the racist um, propaganda. I'll be interested to hear what other people say, but I think part of my sense of how Du Bois got out of this is he thought that what you're seeing in America, the current degree of racial animus, the violence, the oppression, like that's partly the result of the fact that we're not a democracy. It's result of the fact that the press is owned by a small number of capitalists. The, the great educational institutions is controlled by the US state, which he thought was not really a democracy. And all of these things have an interest in sort of keeping us apart. They have an interest in turning one section of the working class on another section. And so they foster division and hatred. In a real democracy, these things wouldn't have that kind of incentive structure and so he thought that democracy would actually help lessen racial tensions and so the best way to get the best way to solve the difficulties we would have if we were to move to a democracy would be more democracy and so i think he thought it was a problem which we would actually work our way out of if only we had democratic control of the institutions of state and government i
1: mean we'll we'll take more questions soon but uh, but liam i want to move on to this topic of du bois's views on science and perhaps social science in particular i mean how did P- du bois see the role of science social science in relation to race and racism did he see science as an inherently racist endeavor
3: so this is as of everything it's something which changed over, over the course of his life so early in his life i think as was mentioned before um Du Bois largely took the view that a lot of what underlay uh, racist behavior and racist beliefs were just factual mistakes about how the world is. And largely that was because science was being done badly on its own terms. It's not that science is an inherently racist endeavor. It's that people were simply failing to do science. So he has this uh, phrase he would often use. He would describe people as car window sociologists because... He thought that their research consisted of driving through town once, looking out the car window and saying, oh, the, the slums look dirty. I guess they're bad then. And, you know, that's it. And he said, like, you can't call that scientific research just because it's getting published. It's not. In some sense, it doesn't really reflect accurate scientific work. And so his early position is just we should do more science and better science and it would correct the the racist lies and uh, this was a
1: time when social science was not really a well-established thing. You know, he was uh, arguing for it.
3: No, no, yeah. I mean, so there's recently been a book come out called uh, by Alvin Morris. Uh, whose name I just forgot and I tried to cover for it, um, yeah, is uh, The Scholar Denied, aha, um, which argues that Du Bois should really be credited with founding the first sociological school in America. The Atlanta Sociological Laboratory is probably the first department of sociology which can really be said to exist. Um, he had gone to, it's telling that he had to go to Berlin to get his. Degree, partly because it was the best university in the world at the time, but also partly because it was one of the only places you could really learn sort of statistical method as applied to society at the time. His book, The Philadelphia Negro, is often thought to be the first work of quantitative uh, urban uh, urban ethnography in american history so he's really a pioneer in um social science in america and so yeah it's it's i think what he's part of what you can see him as saying is what has passed for social science before what has passed for systematic observation of social life fails to meet even sort of minimal scientific standards
1: so this is the early view the early view is you know quantitative rigorous social science is is crucial it's something that actually promotes the fight against racism
3: yeah um and his later view is i describe it as a nuancing of this like he, he never abandons the view that in the end people believe a lot of false things and if only they would study the world more rigorously that that would overcome that mm-hmm. but he can't, he he becomes he develops more of a sense that it's not just that they sort of contingently happen to believe false things, but that in some sense their sort of various psychological and social forces make, them, make those beliefs hard to dislodge, that it won't do just to prevent, present them with stuff which is a quite decisive counter-argument. You need to make that information vivid to them in such a way that it will get through those psychological barriers and change the aspects of society which give people an incentive to uphold those lies. Um, and so it, it's not so much that he abandons his view of science, but he comes to nuance it a bit more with an appreciation of the psycho and social forces upholding propaganda. Mm, so, the, a need for propaganda, not
1: just science, in a way. I need to,
3: yeah, a need to sort of supplement one's scientific research with counter propaganda or present one's scientific research in a way which is more vivid. So, the souls of black folk it doesn't read like a work of sociology, but very frequently if you know his prior research you can see in the chapters underlying it is like observational or quantitative social science. It's just he's now trying to present that work in a sort of poetic way or through fiction, in a way which he thinks might actually break through people's uh, racist imaginations. Let's talk about propaganda
1: because, I mean, this is a word with negative associations, right? I mean sounds like a bad thing, but to some extent Du Bois is is a kind of qualified defender of propaganda for the right purposes? Mira?
4: Um, Yeah, I would... Not so much propaganda, but a narrative, right? A narrative Mm. history. And this is... um, And this speaks to his scholarship in the fields of history and particularly... um, African history, and uh, I mean, Brian, will maybe we have said a bit more about Black Reconstruction, but he's consciously aware that one of the myths surrounding um, black people is the absence of a historical presence for them. So he spends a lot of time researching African history, the civilizations of Ethiopia and Southern Africa, the varied different kinds of peoples and languages that have existed all over the continent. Um, why? Because he is experimenting in some sense with the reconstruction of a black historical subject Mm. that can then be an equal contributor to human civilization Mm. as a whole.
1: So I guess he he sees a lot of the the history of his days written by white people itself a kind of propaganda. It it kind of erases black people.
4: Yes, I mean, if you think very concretely about the ways in which the American continent has been settled Mm. and which the... um, Uh, continents around the world are subject to imperialist control and expansion and you look at things like the conference of berlin which is the division of africa but set up as a sort of anti-slave trade conference Mm. Um, then that propaganda is just sort of everywhere and he can see through it Um, but he realizes that it's not enough just to say you know you guys are wrong but that blackness is something real and these are people with civilizational pride.
2: So I think I think in terms of historiography, because there are parallels really, uh, and maybe it grows out of his changing approach to science and scientific research. But in Black Reconstruction, he uh, argues not only that not really that black people have been erased from history, but there's been a kind of a systematic denigration of what he calls he, – he calls Reconstruction the greatest attempt to establish democracy for the working millions that the world had ever yet seen. For Du Bois, Reconstruction is really the high point you know, in, in American history in terms of uh, democracy for the masses. Uh, the attempt that he detects among white historians to diminish the importance of that, that experience is not just, is not really about erasure as it is as much about denigrating and, and burying that uh, that history. So he talks about a, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something about a deliberate effort to so change the facts of history that it will make pleasant reading for white Americans. That's what he talks about in terms of, in a chapter called The Propaganda of History, which is a systematic demolition job on a generation of racist uh, historiography. I mean, Du Bois really takes on the whole of uh, the uh, historical profession and demolishes them in in a single chapter. So, so actually that chapter, The Propaganda of History, it's one of the
3: ones that I've looked at the most in thinking about Du Bois's changing views on science because this is from the 30s, which is relatively late in his scientific career. And one of the interesting things about that is you can find him saying some of the same things he was saying mm-hmm. in the 1890s about science, which is he thinks that indeed uh, uh, white historians have systematically gone wrong. They've denigrated African-Americans. And he... Places the blame not, I mean, he places the blame on the particular social goals they're trying to advance, but his argument's more general than that. His argument is that it's problematic for a scientist to be trying to advance social goals. This is one of the ways in which. Um, I said that Du Bois actually answers quite general questions about the kind of thing science is along the way to answering the particular things. And that's an argument which has been constant with him since the the 1890s. He's fundamentally suspicious of the scientist, qua scientist, in their scientific work trying to... um, promote a particular social ideal because he thinks that will always lead to misrepresentation in this case in a kind of in service of a, what's more a pernicious ideology But
1: right so you might think he's someone who thinks science needs to have anti-racist values but really he thinks science should be value free
3: but, but, of course, he then thinks that if you did that, it would have the consequence of being anti-racist. Yeah, because um, he thinks science as it is, is
1: actually sort of infused with racist yeah. values.
3: Shot through racist assumptions. Um, now, there is a little bit of a tension here, which is that Du Bois himself was simultaneously a scientist and somebody who was obviously actively working to promote uh, social goals mm. throughout his life. And I think this is one of the points where Du Bois' elitism comes in. Du Bois is, a, is, is very clever, and he can simultaneously be an activist and uh, and a scientist, but he thinks that most scientists like, aren't, like can't be trusted with that. It will interfere
1: with their reasoning. The, well. the average scientist should try and not address questions of value at all, just just leave politics out of it.
3: And, and and I think that's informative as to, like, it tells you something about this guiding elite, right? Like, it turns out it's, it's not enough to have a PhD from Harvard, right? Like, it's... Like it's only a very special kind of person who gets to be one of the mm. real guiding elite. Great,
1: I mean, let's let's take a few more questions from the audience now. Uh, there's a question here. Again, please wait for the microphone to come to you.
2: Hi, um, the United Nations Constitution identifies racism as a part of uh, discrimination. So how did it happen, how they included it, and uh, what is the role of Dubois in that?
3: So, oh, right.
4: No, I was going to say, I don't think the Convention on Racial Discrimination happens until the mid-50s, 54 or 55. Actually, Du Bois had been in San Francisco in 1945, a delegation from the NAACP um, had been there in 1945 asking for racism to be written into the UN Charter and being rebuffed essentially by the imperialist powers at the time. Um, so it's only when, let's say, the third world gets going in the UN um, that they're able to pass such things as the conventional racial discrimination. And then after that, what you get is a lot of substitutions of race talk for culture talk and civilization talk. And so and it progresses a bit from that.
1: Mr. was Dubois an influence on the UN
2: at all? So he's deeply involved in the pan-Africanist movement. And uh, as has been said, you know, is... I suppose the most important development for him in the post war world, uh, even though the Cold War is descending, is the emergence of uh, new independent nations in Africa and Asia, mm-hmm. which he is uh, deeply attached to. And also, I think it played a role in kind of promoting over uh, decades before that.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's uh, go to the, the second row here. Sorry for the delay while the microphone. Uh makes its way over. It's great if we can capture the question.
2: Thank you for your
3: time so far. I just wanted to ask, what was his relationship like with uh, Marcus Garvey, if any? Marcus Garvey? um, Quite hostile. Um, He, I mean, I think in line with sort of many intellectuals of the day, uh, he largely thought Garvey was a huckster. I mean, he he just thought he was a kind of a, a fraud. Later in, I mean, he did also acknowledge that, that Garvey's organizational abilities were quite something. It was one of the, I mean, it was to that point the largest movement of African-Americans which, for their own civil rights, which had then existed, and he had to acknowledge that that, was, that mattered and that was important to his goals. But Garvey's political movement of sort of recolonizing Africa, but with, with the movement of African-Americans, the kind of, the scheme where you gave him money and he would make you a a duke in the coming kingdom, uh, he largely saw this as fraud and perhaps with reason.
2: So, I think he probably he couldn't have helped to notice Garvey's deep influence in in Harlem, though, for example. And some of the people who Du Bois had collaborated with before the First World War, uh, Hubert Harrison's an important figure and probably important to Garvey's rise in Harlem, Uh, Du Bois has relationships with these people that are uh, severed after he takes a position supporting uh, the U.S. during the First World War. Um, For Harrison and for others, uh, this is – Du Bois alienates himself, I think, from the most radical elements in the black community in Harlem. So uh, he has a complicated relationship with Garvey. I see a bit of envy in that as well because in some ways Du Bois is – engaged in some very similar uh, agitation. But, uh, yeah, he has, a, he has a critique of Garvey uh, at the same time. I, I think for the wartime period, up until the mid-'20s, really, Du Bois is outside uh, the ranks of the most active and energetic elements in New York and in black New York. It, it should be said that...
3: Um his support for world war 1 he came to sort of bitterly rue that so he had um, encouraged african americans to sign up he wrote a famous article close ranks that we can sort of demonstrate our loyalty and worth as citizens by by serving on the front now in many other ways du bois was a pacifist and he himself had analysed this as a fundamentally imperialist war, and so people saw it as a real betrayal for him then to like line up behind the the, the drums yeah. for war. And he himself came to regret the decision. He thought, especially since the the soldiers were sort of, they it to- totally failed to gain any respect. They were harassed lynched and lynched and murdered return. upon return. And he just thought, like, I I encourage people to, to to engage in this traumatic bad thing, and it didn't have any positive respects or goals, so he severed his relationship with a lot of radicals, and then he himself admitted it was a big mistake. What did he think about World War II? I don't know about that. I mean, he he certainly thought it was good that the Nazis were defeated. Um, he had before, He had at one point in his life, he had been uh, a booster for Imperial Japan because he saw it as a, a non-white power finally defeating the Western powers and driving back imperialism. But by the time of World War II, he also sees imperial japan is like not a good state not the kind of thing that should be supported mm-hmm. so i don't know of any writings of his specifically addressing kind of entering the war but he clearly thinks the defeat of fascism was a very good thing and
1: uh, further questions yeah there's quite a few here so let's go to the second row and then we'll we'll go uh back <coughs>
5: Question um, about something earlier. I had to leave, so I thought I would ask it quickly. Apologies for my about-to-be absence. Um, I had a question about the problem of the color line. There seems to have been debate in political studies about how significant his uh, problem of the color line was. He upset, I remember, quite a few, not just Garvey, but um, there's another famous one, um, I Am Not Your Negro, focus of the documentary, who also was quite upset with Dubois as well for how he felt that religion uh, could be... sorry, not religion, race, (laughs) could be this universally applied thing where um, you could be a part of a race, be a part of a religion, and that anyone could be a part of the oppressed races. Um, Could you talk about whether the role of the problem of the colour line is important in relation to international politics or philosophy as well?
4: Yes. so again, uh, as with the concept of double consciousness, you can... um see the uh, engagement of the global colour line as a point of cherry-picking within Du Bois's thought. Again, it's something that he only explicitly mentions a couple of times. However, I do think it's consistent with his wider analytics of imperialism, that I think if you're framing it in today's uh, lingo, you might see it as a tension between, let's say, Afro-pessimism and political blackness. So Du Bois, I think, would fall in the latter category in the sense that although he's a real believer in... uh, black uplift he sees exploitation in uh, amongst the darker races of the world as being ultimately kind of of a similar type and effect so even though it has a specific instantiation in the states um, the color line is his way of saying uh, actually this is happening around the world
1: let's let's take another a couple more questions uh, in quick succession so let's go to the, the third row there and then we'll go to the back of the room we just do one question after another then we'll have time to get more Did
3: in. do Bois think that the white working class was a completely lost cause did he have any sort of strategies to um, unite the black and white working class in, in the southern United States and just in terms of his thought and ideas if there was one particular thought that sort of crystallised into um, having some relevance for the contemporary situation in America with Trump and in the White House what would that be
1: Good, and let's let's go straight to the question from the back of the room then, and then we'll come back to the panel on both.
3: Um, could you expand on if there were any changes? Uh, we, we seem to be getting a reflection of the man's mind, say, having lived in Europe and having lived in America. Could you expand on did he have a varied worldview, having been forced to, say, live in Ghana? What was his worldview if he had a change... Uh, in his latter life, living in Ghana.
1: Great. So a question about white working class in Du Bois' time and, and the time of Trump, and a question about how Du Bois' experiences in living in Africa and Europe shaped his views.
3: So I guess let me come to the, the last question first. So it was only quite late in his life that he moved to Ghana. Um, so I think it's been said that the Du Bois's funeral was actually the first major state event in Ghana after independence. Um, I don't think you see any sort of major change in his, his worldview, but he certainly becomes he certainly sort of becomes ev- even more enthusiastic about Nkrumah and the liberation movements then going on in the third world. So it it encourages him in some of his beliefs. He thinks like, this is the right track and we should keep going with this revolutionary movement for independence around the world. I mean, I'll let people come in and have questions. Go okay.
4: ahead. Oh, just to maybe um, add to that, I think um, his encounter with actual continental Africans as opposed to the imagined kind of African diaspora um, complicates his views on the possibilities of race solidarity, and I think he sees those things as more difficult in practice than he had imagined from either from his kind of writing room in Germany or in in the States. Um, so I think that's a slight uh, complication. I want to think about the Trump question a bit.
2: <laughs> uh, on the white working class, I mean, I think this is important and it figures somewhat in black reconstruction because one of the questions that he confronts is why, if, it, if it's the case that former slaves are fighting for a, uh, during reconstruction are fighting for a more egalitarian society where the old planner class no longer uh, rules the roost? Why is it that white workers, uh, white labor in the South uh, most often takes the side of uh, their former former rulers? And Du Bois explains this um, with something uh, that I think he got from correspondence with somebody else on the left, but he says that White workers are compensated for their destitution, their their poor material conditions, by a psychological wage. That is, uh, a sense of racial superiority uh, offers some compensation, meager compensation, you might say, for um, their their deprivation. And I think there's a tension in Du Bois, which I think is worth, you know, which has kind of enduring uh, power between, on the one hand, you know, he argues there are no people anywhere on the face of the earth with more in common than black and white workers in the South. On the other hand, uh, most of uh, American history is a story about uh, the white uh, working classes being engaged in vicious racial uh, uh, or brought along on vicious racial kind of pogroms. So I think he, is, he would like to see... He aspires to see a multiracial, interracial labor movement, but um, is, I think, fairly sober about the prospects for that in the late 19th century South, and rightly so, I think. Um, the other thing that should be said, really, is that Du Bois does not really have a relationship with the labor movement at any point in his life. I mean, there is an organized labor movement, uh, and, and in the 1930s, there's quite a uh, dynamic uh, explosion of labor uh, struggles among black workers that Du Bois really doesn't have uh, a, a relationship to. There are other people in his milieu: Abram Harris, Ralph Bunche, uh, uh, A. Philip Randolph. You know, people who had been his contemporaries, who are deeply involved in this. Uh, du Bois is um, out of touch, I think, with um, that, and and therefore remains pessimistic. Even when those possibilities present themselves in the 1930s uh, in in ways that his contemporaries are um, more insulated from so
3: um, for to sort of crystallize a thought from Du Bois, which might be relevant to contemporary america and it 's i say contemporary America because this is predates trump uh, I think from the outside one can. Underestimate how much the struggle for basic voting rights continues in America. There's a real sense in which many African-Americans in particular, it's, it's very racialized, still are unable to get political representation through the ballot books. And if you take Du Bois's early argument seriously, if you take this point that it, you can't achieve various economic and social goals until you can protect yourself politically, from the machinations of the state both local and um distant and also like ensure that the various supposedly neutral elements of the state actually work to your benefit when they're meant to then it gives real reason to focus on the continued struggle for actually gaining rights to vote like effective right to political representation for african-americans so i think The lesson I take from Du Bois is that's a worthy object of focus. That's where to concentrate our energies. I'm afraid we're out of time, but I mean that that comment
1: about the contemporary relevance of Du Bois I think is a fantastic closing remark. Uh, So let's thank all of our panelists for a really interesting (laughs) discussion.